0: Pod, 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 pod. Rugby pod.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Rugby Pod. I'm Andy Ryan, Big Jim and Goody with me as usual. We'll be dissecting all the action from the Champions Cup semi-finals, Plus we'll be looking at another Grand Slam for England's women in front of a record crowd at Twickenham and chatting to one of their star players of the tournament, Sadia Kabea. So settle back, enjoy, and make sure you've subscribed on Spotify. How are you, lads? Where are you, Jim? Recovering. I wouldn't say recovering.
2: I'm all right now. If this was Friday, it would be recovery. And we can come on to last week's shenanigans, work, uh, giving back to the community, whatever you want to call it. (laughs) But I'm on the west coast of Scotland at my friend's place. Big shout out to Archie and Jack on the island of Ling. And if you are not Scottish, you'd call it Lewing. A beautiful spot. Weather's beautiful today. I'm a bit echoey. I'm in a bunker. I'm in a... Glamped up pod, not like the rugby pod, as in like a glamping pod. I thought it
0: was going to be a TMO bunker.
2: No, you should be here now with me, sleeping and tweeting and eating. So no, I'm in the island of Ling or on the island of Ling, in on. So that's why I'm echoey because I'm not at my home studio or down in London. But the beauty of the rugby pod is we can record remotely as we are all well-travelled men and travelling gentlemen. And yeah, I'm good. Been with the kids. They've got yet another bank holiday. There's one next week, the King's coronation. There's a teacher strike maybe the week after. There's another teacher strike after that. And doesn't matter because I can't spell or read or write and teach my kids anything. And maybe it's on me to be a better dad. I don't know. But the kids are off school again. So we've decided to come away.
0: How far was the drive from your house in Edinburgh to where you are now? And how was it with four kids? That's look, The masses want to know that. They want the story. They want the sick. They want... The screaming, they want you getting out of the car. How was it? Three words, too
2: far, shite. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm being harsh. Three hours, four hours? Yeah, three hours. Yeah, yeah, you know the number. The number, anything over an hour is unbearable torture. So it was triple that. Three hours, but we're here now. And I was going to say, we offloaded the kids. We haven't. They've just been a bit feral for the last few days and been told that, you don't go on screens. You need to pick up a book and read. But, Dad, you're on your phone. You're on your phone <laughs> posting videos. Like, yeah, it's
0: work. Work, kids.
1: How about you, Goody? You, you're in good spirits after the week you boys have had?
0: Yeah, just about recovered now, actually. Started on Tuesday at the... Leicester Tigers Awards evening, which I felt very humbled and privileged to host. So obviously I was excited and um, went quite hard with that one. And then it kicked on to Wednesday. And I've got to say, Wednesday we were down... Hang on,
2: can we go back? Can we go back? Because you've completely brushed over it. I'm leaving the house on Wednesday morning to go to London at four in the morning to get a flight down to London, then on to Exeter. And I've got a text message at five to four off Andrew Goose. So as he's getting in... I'm getting up, so that's Whoa. the difference in our lifestyles. Yes, yes.
0: Oh, it's just life, Jim, and not it? It's just, you know, a couple of beers, that's all it was, right?
2: Chips in the night is all I'm thinking.
0: Yeah, that did happen. And then Wednesday, we drove down to Exeter, I drove down to Exeter to host Jack Noel and Henry Slade's testimonial with the great Jim Hamilton, and oh my goodness, what a night. I'm not going to say very much about it. It was a... Brilliant room to be in, a lot of love in the room for Jack and Henry, and everyone's just waiting for Jim to smoke bomb, I'm going to be honest, everyone's waiting for the smoke bomb. Jim, you did me proud, you were there to the end, you did me proud for the first time in your life, you kept up the pace, we had an amazing night, we had Hoggy on stage, we had Jack Yandel on stage, we had Luke Pierce came on stage with Sarah Cox, we had Scott C.O., And then the two big boys at the end, Jack and Henry. I mean, I don't want to say that they might have lost the game because they were chopping pints on stage with me and Jim on Wednesday night, but it was hell of a night, wasn't it?
2: I felt like I owed an IOU, not only to Goody, but for the Exeter people in the room as well. Obviously, a lot happened with Saracens. I was central to a lot of them things, and I felt like I needed to give back. Stuart Hogg, my great friend Stuart Hogg was there. He wanted to give back with me, so we enjoyed a bit of time together. I don't know why I'm speaking so seriously. Maybe that is because it was a late one. Did I feel guilt and did I feel anger the next day? You're fucking right, I did. I wasn't very happy that I didn't smoke bomb. In hindsight, I wish I smoked bombed. I should have smoked bombed, but I didn't. And Exeter, full of great people, great players. And ultimately, I personally wanted to give them a proper send-off. So I made sure I was the last man standing. Alongside Andy Good, who I knew would be the last man standing, but as long as I was with him, I knew I would have been last.
0: Yeah, it was a hell of a night. A load of money raised, obviously, for their testimony. And poor old Jack Knoll, he got the ten grand fine last week, didn't we, that we spoke about? But we had to raise a lot more money for him to pay that ten grand fine, but also for the charities that they're supporting in their testimonial. And it was brilliant. I felt very honoured and humbled actually to host that, didn't you, Jim? Because we went down there with an apology for Jim Saracen's days and the one bed flat in Luton. And obviously, we know there is a bit of ill feeling between Exeter and Saracens and what went on. And Jim played a big part in that one of those finals, getting the turnover, didn't you, Jim, back in the day for Saracens? So to go and host something like that was a phenomenal evening. And we got tucked in and we had a good time. It was a great night, wasn't it, Jim? Yes, yeah, great people
2: in the room. And I'm glad that I had a blowout. Myself, Luke Pierce, Stuart Og, we can say it now. There was a few of us that were... <laughs> Letting our fake hair down, let's put it that way, and getting the fake white gnashes grinning from ear to ear. And then finally, as we are doing shout-outs at the beginning, we'll do them at the end as well. Harris Rugby Club, we were in Dundee. I took Goody, north of the border, not just north of the border, proper nosebleed territory. We went north of Edinburgh, an hour and 20 minutes north. So big shout-out as well to the Manctuary, because they looked after us before. But Harris, big shout-out to you as well, because it was another long night, but... All for a great cause.
0: We go around the country doing a lot of these, don't we, Jim? Speaking here, there and everywhere. But you kind of get hooked in by some stories at certain rugby clubs. And the story about Malcolm McKenzie, we've got to give him a big shout out, who was a player, came off with a bang during the game, left the field, went inside, didn't feel great, physio checked him over, thought he was okay. He's gone inside thought, right, I just need a quick shower to get myself better. He's collapsed in the shower and effectively died in the shower. They found him about 20 minutes later, face down. What? Part of the fundraising on the night at Harris Rugby was to to buy defibrillators because he needed a defibrillator to bring him back to life, effectively. They were saying that he was dead for quite some time, but through the actions of Ewan Beaton, Grace Tonner, Duncan Johnston, Adam Wood, Keenan Agley... And a few others, they gave him CPR. He's turned it round and he's he had six shocks of the dfib brought back to life, and uh, he's actually going back Jesus. to being a policeman next month. So, hell of a story and a hell of a good feeling in the room from everyone at Harris Rugby. So, shout out to them. I got tucked in again on Friday night and came home Saturday with my tail between my legs.
2: Talking of tails between your legs as well, this it shows the power, the spirit and the humour within a rugby club because when they rolled him over... He said it was like minus 65. So he said, (laughs) when your heart stops, everything shrinks. So he had to explain that moment that when they did roll him over and his heart had stopped, as soon as he got defibrillated, if that's what they call it, heart brought back to life. Everything grew back into shape. But I think he was worried that people were taking pictures, but they were having a good old laugh about it. We were obviously piggybacking it as well. But yeah, hell of a story. I actually went back and told the missus about that one just because I wanted to bring back the love and the energy that I weren't feeling bad. (laughs) from
1: Exeter and it was
2: the feel good and giving back to local rugby clubs but it's great to venture north obviously myself and Goody we do a lot of stuff in London Dublin we've been to Edinburgh a few times but to go further north of that and go into
1: the heartlands of Scotland Harris Rugby Club it was class as well. Gosh you guys have had a massive week how confident do you think Exeter was when you guys were down there going into that Semi-final. Do you think they actually thought they had a chance, or because it didn't really look like it?
0: They were back themselves. That you know they they thought that this was their time again to finish off with a lot of players leaving. We know the stories of it, and it felt like a really good vibe in the room. They'd spoken about what Gloucester did to La Rochelle in their last sixteen game, and how Saracens took it to them as well. And Saracens, you know, had a load of opportunities they didn't take. So I think they were thinking that they could go there and do a job. And you know, obviously Sam Simmons scores early on to put my head, and you're thinking it's going pretty well. And then, oh my God, the juggernaut hits you. Not one juggernaut, about 15 juggernauts come after you. And the best thing about it, the interview after the game from Jack Noel, when they said, did the best team win there? He's like, my God, yes, they did. La Rochelle looked on a different planet at times, didn't they, in, in how they played. Souteni in the centre, you look at his offloads and how he was. Big Willy, little Willie Skelton was huge again. Audrey, the same names just mm. keep rolling off. Bottier goes off injured and you think, and I'm joking down at Extra on Wednesday, I'm like, who's tackling Bottier? Good luck to whoever's tackling him in the room in Exeter. And a few of the lads are like, yeah, we'll smash him. He goes off injured and you're thinking they've got a chance, but that's a champion team for you there, isn't it? Outstanding. The power game. Exeter, they made a couple of errors and they put up a good fight, Exeter did. You know, obviously they got blown away at times. The yellow card to Dan Frost was crucial. They couldn't stop the power game. And you yeah, know, credit to Larishad. This isn't about really Exeter being how far were they second best because they were comfortably second best. Lara were just on another planet that day at times, and some of the rugby was absolutely unbelievable.
2: Yeah, and it also showed you that last year, not that anyone thought it was a fluke, but this is a team that is around and here to stay for a long time. You look at the profile of that team, the mix of international quality and also the different cultures into that, the fact that you've got an Irishman at the helm, and they did get a scare against Gloucester in the last 16 then they went on to absolutely dominate Saracens. Honestly, like I said it last week, I didn't really think that Exeter stood a chance. Having been in the company of them and listening to them, you felt, well, if things go to plan and there's a bit of luck and there's potentially a sending off, then they could do something. And we saw early on they threw the kitchen sink. They were talking about the big start and the lead up to the game. They had a massive start but you actually look at the profile of the two teams. I saw a stat up. There was something like 80 kgs difference between the two packs. And you look at the domination they had at the scrum. You know, even in third or fourth gear, that carrying ability just to get over the game line, the stuff that maybe, unless you're a purist, which me and Goody are you don't think makes a huge amount of difference, but even them two extra metres in contact, every single time, time and time again, you're on the back foot, and their accuracy and their power, and just the complete game. Like mentioned, the scrum, the line-out drive... Raymond Rawls on the wing, goodness me. Like We haven't even spoken about him on top of the layers of players that we were chatting about before. I I don't want to jump too far because we'll come on to the final. Exeter gave a great account of themselves. They spoke about it being the last dance because you think about the players that were playing in that game. Sam Simmons off to Montpellier. I'm not too sure where Joe Simmons is going, but Dave Ewers was on the bench. Yannis Kirsten as well is leaving. Obviously, Hoggy as well is retiring at the end of the season. There was a lot on that game, a lot of emotion going into that game, extra in a rebuilding phase. Did they see themselves being in the semi-final of the Champions Cup? Probably not, but it was one last chance saloon. They went down fighting to the very end, and I think they did as much as they probably physically could against the current champions.
0: Yeah, I just wonder whether a bit of experience of Stuart Hogg starting back there could have made that difference. But I think whatever team extra had picked, they'd have come up second best because... La Rochelle were ridiculous. You talk about the big names and Jim mentioned a few others then. Anton Hastoy at 10, who has come in this season and done exceptionally well. He has been unbelievable. Kerbalo at 9, who I know missed the final last year from... I think he broke his hand a few weeks before. He was ridiculous at 9. But just have a look at Hastoy at 10. You're playing under Ronan Ogara. You're controlling the game like on the big stage... Multicultural team. You've got a couple of South Africans on each wing. You've got a few French boys in the front row. Your centre souteni He's been in France a while, but he's a Pacific Islander. You know, just to control it as a ten, understanding how the game flows and all that stuff. I thought he was absolutely brilliant, and no one's really mentioned too much about him because of all the other big names in the squad and big performances. You know, those X-factor moments that come up. And Raymond Rule was massive at the weekend, wasn't he? But have a look at Hastoy. He is an unbelievable player. And he's done exceptionally well for
1: Larochelle. Well, what's he doing to control the game that's having such a big impact in your eyes?
0: Listen, he's got like weapons all over the field outside him, and sometimes the hardest thing is to pick out the right weapon to use. But he's got the crossfield kick game that leads to Raymond Rules try. He's just he's he never looks flustered. He's a really good looking guy as well. So I'm looking at him going, he's the ideal rugby player. Lovely hair, but managing a game and he's not always just looking to. Chuck the ball around everywhere and just hope something happens because they've got X Factor players. He is picking out the right options, going to the line. He opens up spaces for other players on the inside, the offloading game. It was just it was a pretty complete performance, really. And I don't, I don't think, however extra played, they could have stopped it. Some of Kerbalo's snipes as well mm-hmm. were, you know, outstanding. And like Jim said, when you're getting your nose through the contact and you're two or three meters past it every time, that's when those little soft shoulders appear because you're on the back foot defensively. And players like Kerbalo, Hastoy, they find those little chinks and other players go and exploit them without necessarily getting the big pats on the back for it.
1: Austin was calling uh, Kerbalo the best nine in the world that's not playing international rugby. Do you think Eddie Jones is going to give him a call because he is eligible to play for Australia? Yeah, I can see it happening. Will
2: Skelton, who will definitely be in the Australian mix. Why not bring one more with you? Friend of the show, Nick White. We'll have something potentially to say about that. I've seen some new names in the Australia squad, but you look at Wales where they're not wanting to pick players like Joe Hawkins now has obviously come out and not being picked in the World Cup squad. Eddie Jones will do the complete opposite. He'll pick players that are on form. And Goody mentioned Kerbalo last year missing out in the final. We were talking him up in the lead up saying how well he was playing and he's backed up that performance World Cup year. I didn't
1: even know he was Australian. I thought he was a Kiwi, I'll be honest. He is a Kiwi, but... He played for the All Blacks and then he has had the stand-down period while he's been in France, so he's now eligible to play for the Wallabies because he's got heritage on that side of his family as well. Just when it really matters, you just come and
2: deliver.
0: Just snippets of gold dust. What Andy Rowe had to do, Jim, was just back himself up this week because the Crusaders got absolutely battered at the weekend. He doesn't want to talk about that, though.
1: (laughs) I'm sure that'll be in the ugly. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't realise that the game wasn't played at La Rochelle. Like The crowd was intense. Was It played at Bordeaux, wasn't it? Neutral. Tell
2: Leinster that in Dublin, neutral ground uh, in the country. No, let's not get it because people think I'm bagging Leinster. I love Leinster. Yeah, I mean, it just shows you, doesn't it? And I had to put a tweet out. I wasn't on my phone a huge amount. It was only on seven hours on Saturday and eight hours on Sunday. So I made sure I wasn't on my phone loads over the weekend while I've been away. But I just wanted to showcase that. I saw someone put up a video of the atmosphere and the energy around the La Rochelle team and the fans if you haven't seen it go back and look at the celebrations last year have a look at what it did to the town it was like football it was like Galatasaray it was like I'm trying to think Cov City back in what year was it Goody 87 87
0: 87, I was there I was there it
2: was like that and you talk about rugby is in a tough spot at the minute in France it's not (laughs) like it's really not it really isn't. And you look at what rugby does to these towns and to these cities. And La Rochelle, again, going deeper into the archives, and we've referenced it here on the podcast, there's a few years waiting list now to get a season ticket. Like, absolutely thriving. And that team, not only on paper does it look amazing, not only do they play a great brand of rugby, they are so well supported. And the story, everyone talks about Exeter coming up through lower leagues to become Heineken Champions Cup winners... Look at La Rochelle, it's exactly the same. They were talking about Weenie Antonio when he came off and came back on and then had that slow walk-off, like players like that who have been through it. I mean, what a wonderful club to play at. La Rochelle, I'll be honest, again, three, four years ago, no idea. Never heard of them at all. It was always Toulouse. It was always Stade Francais. Then it was Racine. Then you had the Perpignans and Beirits and Bayonne. Never La Rochelle. And now I look at them, I'm like, well, I'd love to go. I've never been. I'd love to go and watch them play in La Rochelle.
0: Yeah, well, I had the privilege once of going and commentating on a game there for BT Sport, and it is an unbelievable place. So I think the population is something like eighty, ninety thousand. 90,000. That's it. What? Yeah, and half of them were down in Bordeaux. So it's an hour and 50 minutes from La Rochelle down to Bordeaux. But it's an amazing story, and the atmosphere in the stadium at home when they play is phenomenal. And I think they're, they've got another home game this season. It'll be their 80th sellout on the spin. Build a bigger stadium, lads, because they're all coming. They're all coming week in, week out. It is an amazing place to go to. And here's a stat for you, talking about La Rochelle. The last time they lost a game in Europe, when was it, Jim? Well, it wasn't last year. Correct. Well, it would have been the year before. They lost the final against Toulouse in 2021. It's two years, effectively, that they've been unbeaten. But I've spent a lot of time commentating on top 14 rugby over the over the years, so I've watched their story come through. Botti has been there for ages, as has, obviously, Winnie Antonio came through. Sazzy in the second row. they have built on their project of, here we are. And that's what Ronan O'Gara talks about. It. He says sometimes it's not about rugby. It's about the project and believing in the project. The whole town are bought into it. Because the huge difference between rugby in England and rugby in France, for me, is culturally... Rugby is effectively religion to a lot of these towns. It's all that they care about. The scenes, the fans, the atmosphere. I messaged my friend, Andrew Brace, and said, tell me about the atmosphere, because he was doing the touch. He's like, mate, it's just a different level. I've never never seen anything like it in my life. The the stadium sort of played up to it as well with how sort of enclosed and tight it was, but geez, it looked absolutely
1: amazing, didn't it? And Leinster got a decent crowd along for their neutral game against Toulouse as well.
0: They certainly did, and yeah, what can you do? They have the right to play it at the Aviva, and a lot of people are pointing the finger at that, saying it's oh, their home ground, and do you know what, so what, who cares? Every semi-final this weekend, actually, were all pretty much sellouts. So the two Champions Cup games were you know, near enough a sellout in the Aviva to still get 45,000 or whatever it was. There were a few seats left at the top, but you know Bordeaux was huge as well. That was a sellout. Then you go into the Challenge Cup, and you look at the two semi-finals, Toulon sold their place out. At home to Benetton and Scarlets. Who knew that many people like the Scarlets again? You know, the big point that everyone's talking about is this home advantage for Leinster and obviously the finals there as well. What they're going to do, are they going to move it down to Munster or somewhere. Of course, they're not going to do it. It is what it is. It's what Leinster have always had the ability to do. And the game was set up to be unbelievable and we can get into the depths of the game what do you mean the TMO was didn't see it because it's an Irish TV producer that didn't show him the replay of Andrew Porter's tackle at a crucial time when it should have been a yellow card? What are you on about? What do you mean that Wayne Barnes was
2: literally a millimetre away from it and didn't see it? I don't, Andrew, I'm staying positive. I'm a big fan of Andrew Porter and I want him to come on. I want Andrew Porter to come on the podcast after they win the final, but I'm not sure with, I don't know how many impressions it got on Twitter, but I know it was in the high hundreds of thousands, Andrew, that you posted the video of Andrew Porter's tackle. I thought it was legal. I'll be honest. It I legal. thought legal. I want to get him on. I, mate, I want to get him on. It was legal. Can you just say it was legal just once, so we can just cut that up and I can send it to him?
0: No, I can't. It was not legal. And listen, this is nothing against Andrew Porter. He made an error, right? But the fact is, Wayne Barnes was a millimetre from it, and he has a look at it, plays on. And I think this is the whole issue. When you then go on to score a try, they kind of forget those things, don't they? And you can see Hugo Moller, who was my old coach at Breve, he's going mad on the touchline. And, you know, getting into the depth of the game, which we will, Leinster are outstanding. You know, Conan obviously was was brilliant in the back row. But that moment, there's a few things that went against Toulouse. Themselves, their errors, their discipline, their decision to go a 6-2 bench. And after 15 minutes, you've got the best player or one of the, the second best player in the world in Anton Dupont, moving from nine to 10. And yes, he can play that, but we're talking the top, top level of semifinals.
2: I saw you tweet that. But hindsight's a great thing. So have you got a reason why you thought a 6-2 instead of a 5-3? Or just because of hindsight and seeing DuPont having to be moved?
0: Yeah, no, I never agree with a 6-2 bench. And I don't think they probably should be allowed it. And we spoke to Ben Young's on here recently. He said, you're trying to find fatigue in players and with a 6-2 bench... You can bring on, effectively, near enough, another pack of forwards, so you're not going to find fatigue on the field. And that's one of my things about the game and how it how it's refereed and how we're playing it. There isn't often space because players aren't fatigued. So that's why we continually see some of these big hits. So I was always, you should have a 5-3 bench, especially in key positions. And the knock-on effect of it, your centre's gone down, right? So you bring a, a different scrum half on, you move the punt from 9 to 10, you move... Unter from 10 to 12, and you move Peter Ackie from 12 to 13, you've moved effectively four players' positions with one injury. I've never agreed in a 6-2 split at all, because one of them has to be able to cover Scrum Half, because it's such a specialist position. In a semi-final, at that level, and DuPont's a world-class player, and he's brilliant when he plays 10 as well, but you've affected the team so much with one substitution and one injury that you've then got four players playing in different positions to where they started the game, and you've got the best player in the world or one of the best players in the world not in his main position where he can be the ultimate threat at the top tier of you know international rugby and it's had a massive effect on them as a team. So they got things wrong themselves but I don't think they were helped with a few decisions as well that could have gone their way. What are your thoughts on the second yellow, Jim? I know, you know people look at it and go, he used his head but Josh van der Fleer's gone into a dead ruck. What's he doing? Then he's taken, he's gone in twice for two nibbles. The ball is miles away at the back of the caterpillar. And Netty just stood there like a... A rhino. He well, it, it is, but he stood there like, like you know, it's an open shot, come and have a go at me. So he's obviously just fucking braced himself. And yeah, he's flicked his head up a bit, but I don't know. I think that should have been a rugby incident. Josh, you shouldn't have been doing that yourself, going in chest up. I think that's where Toulouse feel a bit hard done by as well. But
2: not to be different to you, but genuinely, I've been in that position many times. And not that I can read Nettie's mind, but... It's a pretty aggressive act, isn't it? You can see Josh van der coming in and people would be like, well, what's he meant to do? He's obviously meant to brace himself, but it was the action. He steps forward with his shoulder, steps forward with his shoulder and bangs his head into him. Genuinely, when I saw it, and this isn't meant to be divisive or to cause a stir or cause, cause an issue. If he would have got red carded for that, I wouldn't have been overly surprised, which is completely the opposite of what you're saying. Mm. Josh van der hasn't done anything wrong in terms of, all right, the ball might be dead. It might be a long rook. He might have no chance of getting the ball back. He's gone in with his closed arms. But what can Netai do? I'm not too sure, but the movement was pretty aggressive.
0: Yeah. What do you mean Josh van der Vler dived, though, and made a meal out of it? Oh, goody. A- Andrew, I did
2: put him in my World 15. I saw what was coming, and we have to be joined up on these things. I knew he was going to take a dive this week.
0: I don't think he dived that bad, did he? No, he didn't. He didn't. It's one of them. You're looking at, I hope he's looking back at that going... The way I've gone to the deck's pretty embarrassing. The turnaround fact is Netty gets sinbinned. Next thing you know, Josh van der Flier scoring a try from the penalty that gets kicked to the line out that they drive over. So small margins, you know, it was a real interesting game at that point. I think they got it back to 27-17, 10 points in it. And Toulouse was starting to get a bit of momentum and and then boom, your prop gets yellow Le or for something like that. And, and then Leinster just pull away completely and it's game over.
1: That was the big turning point for you? Well,
0: there's two big turning points. Mm. Well, three big turning points, really. Ramos's yellow card, and I'll come on to another yellow card later in the game. You talk about the frustrations in the game. I 100% believe Thomas Ramos, his yellow card is right. It was the right decision by Wayne Barnes. A minute before that, or a couple of minutes before that, Anton Dupont's moved from scrum half to fly-off, so he's hardly had an impact on the game for the next 15 minutes. And with Ramos getting sin Jameson Gibson-Park finds the blindside a few times, they score a couple of tries, and the game at that point you think is pretty much gone for them. So the ramos yellow card is 100% right. The decision to go a 6-2 split, which affected what happened, hindsight, you're looking at it, you don't want Anton Dupont going to 10 in a European semi-final. Yes, he can do it in a league game, and people have come up with that example to me, but it's a Heineken Cup semi-final, right, against the best team, Leinster, you know, generationally that we've seen coming out of Ireland. So you can't have your best player playing out of position, plus your second best player in Intermac playing out of position, plus probably your third best player as well in Peter Aki then moving as well. But their discipline let them down. Leinster were great. Jameson Gibson-Park, phenomenal at Scrum Off. And when you look at the difference between him and then the moving Anton Dupont Anton Dupont had no impact on the game at all because he had to get moved to 10 early on. And, you know, Jameson Gibson-Park was on fire,
2: Talking of 10s, Ross Byrne, come off the man, come off the hour. I've been waiting to say that all show. But everyone was talking about Johnny Sexton a few weeks back. It's now Ross Byrne. He's now taken that jersey by the scruff of the neck, no pun intended. I thought he was brilliant at the weekend. Ball in hand, managing the players around him, kicking off the tee. Uh, You could see the energy, the confidence barking at the players. I thought he was brilliant as well. So it's one of them, like good, he has gone through the archives of what Toulouse could have, should have, would have done. We've been all over Leinster. this year, saying about them being unplayable, how well Ireland have played, Ireland-France, analogy in the lead lips the game with the bulk of the Ireland squad in Leinster, a load of the players playing for France in Toulouse. It's a really hard one because you, people are going to talk about the final like, What do you think, what do we get from that? Well, there was a number of reasons both teams it's really hard to judge because I think the two very best teams are in the final and it is going to be hard to call, but Leinster at times during that game, they were unplayable again and you look at how well Conan played at eight. Kaelin Mjoldoris was quiet as he's ever been, really. And it doesn't matter because you've got a quality like Jack Conan, Josh van der Fleer back in, James Ryan, who I left out of the World 15. I should have put him in, Will we Skelton and Again, hindsight, I didn't last week. And Dan Sheehan, again, who for me is the informed hooker. Oh, good. In the world right now. Oh, unbelievable. Unbelievable. When I was with him a couple of weeks ago, I couldn't believe how tall he was. Yeah. Which is a weird thing to say, but as a hooker, really, really tall. And you think for the final they've got Ronan Callagher coming back, they're gonna have Robbie Henshaw as well, back in the mix. Him and Ringrose, twelve thirteen, James Lowe, is he gonna make it back? Hugo Keenan was fairly quiet at fifteen as well. Yeah. At the weekend compared to how he has been. Jimmy O'Brien, friend of the show. Like they're just quality on quality. And again, I'll say it, I think when they're on all firing on all cylinders, and they win that physical battle, which is the big question mark, whether or not they can do that
1: over La Rochelle, they're unplayable. Well, it's a few weeks away, but after seeing what you've seen from the weekend, have you got any indication or insight into who you think will win this final? It's hard, isn't it?
0: La Rochelle are champions. They're playing a great brand of rugby. There's the whole underlying story of Rog, a monster boy, you know, coming up against Leinster and in Dublin. And a lot of things will get written about that. The power game of LaRochelle. I think everyone thought Leinster were just gonna to cruise to victory last year in the final and probably didn't pay La Rochelle enough respect. But it's so hard to look past Leinster in, in Dublin. But as people have said, everyone talks up this Leinster team, yeah, they are a great outfit, but they've only won it once in ten years. And they are year on year people's favourites. So they've got some big sort of questions to answer themselves and it's hard to look past them in Dublin when when the writing's on the wall for most teams when you know Leinster can play all their games at the stadium that they're going to play the final at if they wanted to. Although La Rochelle, they shocked them last year. They can do it again. And the year before.
2: You think about what La Rochelle did to them in the semi-final of the year before, that physicality. And that was the shift, wasn't it, for Leinster and for Ireland that a lot of them spoke about is the power game. Arguably, you could say Jacques Nienaber coming in that pack. Well, in fact, speaking to Leo Cullen personally, He's referenced that around the physicality that South Africa play with. Maybe that's an added layer that Leinster might need. And that is the big question mark. We know Leinster play a brilliant brand of rugby when they're on the front foot. When I look at that La Rochelle team, I look at the scrum, the dominance that they had. And yes, without being horrible, you look at where Extra and what they're going through. It was only Exeter. Leinster are going to be a very different outfit. But when they've got players like Will Skelton, Winnie Antonio, Gregory Aldrete that power game that they can play, but also layered on top of that, the tactics that someone like Ronan O'Gara and that kind of multicultural influence that they have. This isn't me trying to stereotype the French. The way that Toulouse played and the whole stuff around DuPont going off was a very French mindset. Coach at the side of the pitch, all emotion, Lee charged, all hands up in the air, all bravado. When really, if he would have took a step back and looked at it properly, like Goudy said, you're playing against one of the best teams in the world, like, why are you going to move four players out of position just to service one injury, and Larachelle is different with Ronan Ogara at the helm, and that influence that they've got I, I do, we've got a bit of time. Let's sit on it and wait, but I think <laughs> I think,
1: pause there, no answer. What happens with the tickets? Does Larachelle get half the stadium? or I don't think they'll get half the stadium. There'll now be
0: an amount that are dished out to the two final teams that will be exactly the same. So, you know, obviously there's loads of people on pre-sale tickets. There'll be loads of Leinster fans that would just expected Leicester to get there because, and it's in their hometown, so they take that risk. But they've probably pre-sold 20,000 or they've got to keep a load back for sponsors and everything like that for the Champions Cup. Then there's going to be 30,000 left, which would be split 15 and 15. I'd suggest that's how it's done fairly. Whether that is the case or not, I don't know. But one thing you do know is you look at La Rochelle, Every time they play, whether it's home or away, there's a lot of supporters there because they love that club. Even to the point of when they played Ulster, rewind your minds back to the game in the group stages when Ulster had to move their game away from the Kingspan because it was frozen and it was supposed to be played behind closed doors in Dublin. There's a load of La Rochelle fans in the stands, were not there? So they'll find a way and I hope they do because the colour they bring, the noise... The flares, and Jim put it on social media, the entrance into the stadium that they created for their own team and how much it means to them, you hope they get as many tickets as possible because they'll just add to an unbelievable occasion.
1: Well, it was a more than decent crowd for the Grand Slam Decider and the Women's Six Nations at Twickenham on Saturday as well. A crowd of 58,498, which is a world record for a women's match. And we can have a chat now with England back row, Sadia Kabea. How are you?
3: I'm very good. A bit refreshed after the game now. It's been two days. Um, It's all sunk in, but yeah, feeling good.
2: Sadia, what are the initial emotions? I mean, it must be quite overwhelming when you look at the amount of people that packed into Twickenham, the momentum and the hysteria that has gathered along this journey with the Red Roses. How how has it been a bit surreal, I imagine?
3: Yeah, it's been so surreal. When anyone's asked me how I felt, I can just say speechless, even walking out into the stadium and looking around and taking an inch and the national anthem and hearing the whole cheer, I think. It takes a while for that to sink in, especially being such a momentous occasion and it being a record breaking crowd. None of us have experienced that before. But I think the main feeling is gratitude and just to be able to get here now and hopefully for it to keep going. But yeah, it it feels very, very good.
0: You said speechless then, and obviously all the girls knew that on the way to the game there would be a record crowd. It wasn't like all of a sudden all these people have come from nowhere. We knew it was going to be huge, but it still sort of took your breath away. I read some bits over the weekend that were really touching around. It kind of kicked in when you're on the bus journey on the way into Twickenham and seeing how many people were hanging outside the pubs and cheering. And I've been there in that situation for England, and it is phenomenal, isn't it? For the first time you've seen it, you get off the bus, the noise it just gives you a massive lift. But how do you balance that between being speechless, shocked, excited, all those different emotions and how do you keep it all in check?
3: Yeah, I think for a lot of the girls and me included, as soon as we step on the pitch, it's kind of uh, a flip gets switched and it's you're into game mode. I think obviously when we're coming into the stadium, people are cheering us in and when you get off the bus and you see all these people, it's quite overwhelming um, and it kind of snaps you back into reality of like what is about to happen. But as soon as we get onto the pitch and especially with the team of England, we're quite focused in our mindset. And for me, when I'm playing, I only hear the noise once the whistle goes. So, like, while I'm playing and I'm making a tackle, I don't hear anything. But if there's a turnover and the crowd then erupts, that's when I kind of realise where I am again. But I think it's, yeah, having that balance about taking in the situation and being present in the moment, but then also focusing on the task at hand, which is obviously winning the game.
2: I'm jumping ahead here. But while the emotion is high, how do you feel that you can replicate that? Because there's a lot of things in rugby at the minute in terms of global calendars, even in the men's game, we're going through big issues. The Champions Cup was obviously on over the weekend as well. So many eyes would have been there and people traveling. As a player, do you think about that or not? Do you just want the powers that be to kind of deal with that? Because you want to replicate this game on game, right?
3: Yeah, 100%. I mean, yeah, there's loads of logistics and things behind the scenes that goes into it. And Obviously, for the women's game and for us, having those types of crowds and for people to see that, it's only going to grow the game and make it better. But it's easier said than done. But I think that's obviously in the back of people's minds and there's a lot of conversations with the media and stuff like that. But for the majority of the squad and for me myself, like you said, we like the powers of B do do that. And we do what we can on the pitch to try and help that move along.
0: Well, the beauty of what we're talking about now is you are a Grand Slam winner again as a team. And we talked about the emotion of the stadium and everything like that. It worked, didn't it? Because we were 33 0 up uh, at half time. It's Simon Middleton's last ever game. And obviously, we know the scoreline. France come back in that second half. What did he say at half time? Because was it the worst team talk ever at half time? Because France came back in that second half. Something strong, didn't they?
3: No, thank God that we started. <laughs> the change in messages was really the same. I think we always knew France was a team that like didn't give up. they built on a lot, of lot of passion. So we knew they were going to come out with new things, You know, start throwing the ball about. And you know, try to get underneath our skin. And in the change room, we even said, like, we got to keep the foot on the throat. And that was the main messaging. Not really sure when went on the pitch when <laughs> we went back out there. But in the change room, the atmosphere and the vibe was the same as it has been previously. It wasn't like we had taken a breath out or anything like that. I think France really just upped their game in that second half.
2: You'll have to excuse my ignorance with this, Sadia, but I did wonder, you mentioned about keeping the foot on the throat. So someone like Simon Middleton, he's a northerner. We're good friends with Lewis Deacon as well. Can you give us an idea of some of the stuff that's said? And like, is it aggressive? Like, is terminology used like that? Do they swear? Like, what kind of emotion is used in a women's changing room for a grand slam decider?
3: So we have breakouts first, like normally going to our forwards and our back stuff. And a lot of that is led by the players at at first. We have a a team of players. So we have Zoe Oldcroft and Sarah Burnley in the line out and the scrum. And then Deeks were chatting with a few things. But a lot of that stuff is quite calm because as a squad, we kind of know what our job is and what we need to do. And then when we come back in and Mids has this chat, usually there's not there's not much swearing, but he's definitely very, very straight to the point. Um, when he speaks, everybody listens and he kind of has this air about him. There definitely has been times in change rooms where there has been a bit of effort in Jeffy, and people are looking around the room and like giving people side eyes because we can feel the tension, but... In the, in the France game, we definitely didn't have that, but it was just very simple messages and very straight to the point.
0: I can imagine half-time was a pretty happy place, right? 33-0 up, you were flying in that first half as a team. The emotion of the changing must have been unbelievable, but then obviously what happened in the second half, the panic stations a little bit. Were, were you ever panicked? Did you ever think they could come back and win the game or was it always, girls, we've still got this?
3: I think probably in that last 10 minutes, we got a bit squeaky bum times, especially, <laughs> you know, obviously with the final score, if there was a minute left on the clock, they could have uh, had a chance to score again. But I think for the 30 minutes of that second half, even though they definitely had us under the cuff for quite a bit there wasn't really an air of oh we could lose this maybe a bit of part of the downfall where we went wrong in that second half thinking that because we'd gone ahead so much in that in the third half that they couldn't call it back and I think there might have been one of the mistakes that we made as a mindset but maybe we should have been a bit more scared and feared what France could have done maybe that would have Kicked us into gear again in that second half, but I well, I never really thought that we were going to lose
2: in that second half. Amazing, probably a good thing though that game against France because of what happened in New Zealand as well. So comfortable in the lead up, and then in the final where we all know we watched it and, and saw what happened and saw the iconic scenes. If you were a New Zealander, do you think there's an element of this being a good thing for your team going forward to the World Cup in two years' time that you've had a, a not a scare, but it's not all been glory in a part of the game and made it more difficult to win the Grand Slam.
3: Yeah, 100%. I mean, probably as soon as we lost that final, our next fight was the Six Nations and obviously getting the Grand Slam. And even with an island game last week, it wasn't our best our best performance. And that was also a bit of a scare of us, a bit of a kick in the arse um, going into France. And then, yeah, we always want to have challenges. And obviously the score lines sometimes don't show that. It doesn't seem like we're getting challenged enough um, playing other teams and in the league but I think yeah we definitely thrive and learn a lot from games like like we did against France so yeah going into 2025 we want to have a lot more challenges a lot more close games um, to make us better and I think hopefully that will show.
1: We've seen the women's game grow massively over the last especially like the last 12 months with two world record crowds, what do you think it is that the women's game has some advantages over the men's game as a spectacle and why people are going to watch it?
3: Yeah, I think the women's the women and men's game is very, very different, especially with the way that we play. I'm a bit biased, but when you play a lot more flow rugby, obviously in the men's game, there's a lot more kicking, a lot more tackling. up, was a lot more structured. And I think in the women's game, we have a bit more room to, to play and a bit more room to have individuals Use their own individual styles and bring that talent to the to the game and I think spectators like to watch that and especially now getting more fans from the men's game, they're also seeing the difference between the two games and it's bringing more and um, more attraction to women's game and I also think generally with, with our fan base, our fan base is a lot more a lot more diverse as well, and there's a load of new a load of people of different races, different sizes, different colors, different social backgrounds, and I think that's also an attraction to women's game because it means People feel like they are welcome no matter where they are from. And I think that's another difference in the men's game with what we see as the typical fan base of what the men the men have as well.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting point, actually. And then looking at the women's game as a whole, and I want to get into your psyche now as an England player. And effectively, England have been the best team or the top two best team with New Zealand in the world for a long, long time. We're seeing the growth of other countries coming through, more investment going into the game from the unions of, of the women's team. But how hard is it? Because I've been in games, I'm sure Jim has as well, where you turn up to the game knowing you're probably going to win by 40, 50 points because you are that much better than them. How hard is it to motivate yourself week in, week out for some of those games, as opposed to playing against France or New Zealand more regularly when they're a lot closer?
3: Yeah, I think from the outside perspective, it probably would seem that there could be some weeks where it's harder to motivate yourself or feel like you're going to get anything from the game. but the messages that we always get week in, week out is to take each game as a new game. Like, clean yeah. slate, go at it, attack it. We don't change what we play for any other team. Even sometimes we'll come away from a game 50 nil, and it will feel like we haven't played great or we didn't put out what we wanted to put out. So even though these scores are not seeming like we're getting challenged or we're winning by miles and miles, because of the standard we hold ourselves to, we can take something from each of the games. So I think a lot of it is driven on by the enjoyment of the game as well so regardless of whether it's a tight game or we're winning by 50 points we always want to go out and play the best so me personally I don't have um, that problem with feeling like I'm not motivated for each of the games
2: What about the opportunity and the realistic ambitions of growth? We've all spoken about it, the amount of people at the game, at the weekend. I interviewed Ellie Kildun a few weeks ago, and we were talking about the uh, elephant in the room, which was salaries, right? So what, as a player, having experienced that at the weekend, do you feel is a realistic goal over the next year? We're seeing more and more teams becoming professional, but realistically, where do we think that this can go? Whether or not it is money or whether or not it is opportunity, just as a player?
3: Yeah, I definitely think... England, they talk a lot about being a world leading team and a world leading squad, and like we said, a lot of other teams are now becoming professional. They're um, yeah catching up to us basically, and we want to keep that standard of being world leading. So it's about how we can keep that gap, being that gap, and keep staying at the top. And I think there's a lot of things that could change to do that. One of them being salaries, obviously coming into 2025, and it's a new new year. Contracts are changing and you know we have higher expectations, especially with the performance we put out over the past couple of years. Coming away from the World Cup being second, having a thirty-one game win streak, we feel like we deserve a lot more. But starting at the base of it, we want to have a world leading leading program, which consists of you know great facilities, great transport to and from games, stuff like that. So it's not just about the money. Uh, I think now contract stuff is done by a specific group, but I think now as a squad we really want to push to. Make our training better. That comes from within the squad and what the RFU can do with that as well. But I think, yeah, the main things would be seeing how England can change through their staff, through their coaching, through the facilities, and then that will cause a catalyst for the salary and stuff to go up with that.
0: I always like to hear about people's backstory into the game. However, you know, it comes about whether you're you know women's player, men's player, seven's player. There's always different stories and nuances around it. And Jim and I have known each other for donkeys years, but we have very different backstories. What tell us a little bit about your backstory, Sadie, because it's pretty interesting from all accounts.
3: So I got into rugby in secondary school in Crystal Palace in South London. I was in Bro, very sporty, I did athletics, trampolining, anything under the sun. And it just happened that my school that I went to had a rugby academy for the sixth formers. So rugby was already a thing at that school. Kind of an anomaly for me, especially in South London, not knowing anything about rugby. Our rugby team looking very untypical (laughs) for a rugby team and got pulled out of a lesson in year eight. We're given some boots, got told the rules, run forward, pass backwards, hit something very, very hard. And that's actually how I got into it. And for the first like three years of playing, I was just playing for the love of it. I didn't go to a club outside of school, I was just playing with my friends in school, training and just like getting in love for the game. And then eventually got picked up and joined the pathway. But my journey into rugby was very, I don't know, one in a million, I think. I mean, the palace at that point in time, I don't think I would have found rugby as quickly as I did, if at all.
1: Were you doing other sports at the same time? Or
3: Yeah, so at that time I was still doing gymnastics and I was doing athletics, so... I think just before I started rugby, I quit gymnastics and I was focusing on doing my shot put and hammer and I was competing at county level for hammer. And when I started training with rugby, obviously, that I was quite full on and I came to a point where I had to choose which one I wanted to do and rugby was the clear winner for me.
0: Now, we mentioned Simon Middleton earlier. It's his last game in charge. There is going to be a coaching change. Who do you want to be in the mix? Does it make a difference whether it's a, a female voice or a male voice or are you going to give Lewis Deakin the job? Because we're mates with Deacs. I don't reckon he's got enough words in his vocabulary.
3: Yeah, I don't think he does. But yeah, I think there's a lot of chat around it about who the next coach is going to be. Is it going to be a woman? Is it going to be a man? But for me personally, and I think we've heard it a lot in the media, whoever's best for the job is only best for the job. If that's someone from the men's game, great. If it's someone from the women's game, great. But it's about who can do that job to grow the Red Roses to, to the next level. Obviously, Joe Yat's been thrown about. There's way there's been thrown about. Um, but for me, it's literally, we're in a really exciting time. The squad is regenerating. We've had so many new players in, old players coming into higher roles in the squad. And having a new coach is only going to elevate that, I think. So I think for me, it's just a lot of excitement to see who it's going to be and see where they can take us. But I have no qualms really about who it's going to be. I just hope they choose someone who's best for the job.
1: All right, Sally, thank you very much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And uh, best of luck with whatever's next.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Cheers, Sadia. Sadia, thank you. Classic, thank you.
3: Lovely. Thank you very much.
0: Cheers, take care. Top woman. Top woman. Lovely to speak to, actually. Imagine that, that feeling. Do you remember the feelings you get on big games, like international days, and that's the biggest they've ever had, 58,000? That is unbelievable, isn't it?
2: It is. And look, I tried to ask the question there. It's what the realistic ambition and growth is, because it's always going to get compared to the men's game. And I saw a few articles at the weekend that pissed me off about how you know, the women's game, the atmosphere and the energy. Like, men's game could learn a lot from that. I get it. Like I understand. But why can't we just celebrate the journey of both that we're doing? Do you know what I mean? It doesn't need to be this divisiveness that goes back and forth. And
0: I to say. They're different games, aren't they? So, you know, they are going to have different people watching them. Uh, but you're right, Jim. Yeah, absolutely. And Scotland.
2: Big up to Scotland. We're doing all right now. Beat Ireland at the weekend. Jim,
1: Glasgow into their first ever European final, mate. How good?
2: Yeah, and before I've not been a huge fan of the Challenge Cup, I am a massive fan now. (laughs) Massive fan.
0: Hashtag always Glasgow, right?
2: I don't even know what the hashtag is for Glasgow, I'm that deep-rooted as a fan. Warrior Nation, I think it was, get it? Because they're called the Glasgow Warriors. Mm -hmm. Very good. Mate, really, really good. You know, firstly, fair play to Scarlets. Like, they rocked up, they were physical, desperation, not had an amazing season, And they left everything out there. And I don't mean that to sound like belittling, like it wasn't expected, like it absolutely was. But this Glasgow team under Franco Smith, again, we've touched on it throughout the season, out of nowhere, really. I thought they were going to take a while to change the way that they were playing since Danny Wilson left. Franco Smith comes in, you hear him whispers like, oh, is he the right, right man for the job? He's very strict. You know, he's made some bold moves by putting Carl Stein as captain who's on the wing. I look at the way that they're playing and what he's got out of some of the players. I'm going to name drop a few. Sione Velanu He has been unbelievable this season, playing seven. That good at seven that Rory Dodge comes back, who's been
0: amazing and is wearing six. So the back row that they've got with Jack Dempsey. How oh, good is Jack Dempsey. Can't get in the Scotland back row. He's on the bench a bit. But you, every time you watch him play, he's hard as fuck, isn't he?
2: Yeah. For me, I, I've watched Jack Dempsey loads. And I think he's a point of difference. Yes, he's played for Australia. Bloody, bloody, blah. De, blah, de, blah. Uh, I played for England 19s. No one cares. They just want the very best players out there on the pitch. I've, God, I've brought it back to me again. Jack Dempsey, very good player. He was brilliant again. They've got George Turner at hooker. Xander Fagerson as well. Richie Gray pulled out before the warm-up. But I thought Scott Cummins and... Dupree in the second row was brilliant. A player that we've never spoken about ever, but I've commentated on him and talked to him when I've seen him play, is Sebastian Cantilleri on the wing.
0: I mentioned him earlier in the season, Jim. Scored that trick,
2: didn't he? Andrew, there you go. So you mentioned him. I don't normally venture out to the wing with people with difficult names to pronounce. So I have done today. (laughs) Very good team. Just a couple of stats uh, from the game. I'm going to give you one big stat because we're talking about players that are very good with the ball in hand attacking so Glasgow attempted 108 tackles they missed four that came from not producer Rob that came from our mate Jamie Lyle so you look at that the defence Peter Murchie doing their defence but they just look a complete team Yeah. Hugh Jones wasn't playing Sione Tupolotu was Gave a shout out to a few of the players. Young 10, Tom Jordan via New Zealand. And I thought George Horn at nine was brilliant. So I've basically name dropped everyone apart from Jimmy Batty. I've name dropped everyone. I thought they were brilliant and fully deserved in the final of the Challenge Cup, which we all love.
0: I love a bit of controversy, right? Wayne Barnes gave 100% the right decision against Thomas Ramos to give a penalty and a yellow oh, card. Oh, you're going intercept it, yeah. intercept. I'm telling you now. So Matthew Ray now, my good friend... We message every now and again, he's the referee. Ollie Smith has slapped the ball up in the air exactly the same as Thomas Ramos did, right? Trying to one-handed slap it up to catch the ball to go for an intercept. It's gone forward because he's dived to try and catch it. He's still got nowhere near it, mind. But because he's dived... He touched it twice. Yeah. It's a penalty try. It's a yellow card. And at that point, with 12 minutes to go, if you're a Scarlet's fan, you are absolutely raging because it was 28-17... The penalty try takes it to 24 28. Glasgow are down to 14 men with 12 minutes to go, and you might see a different finish to that final. All I'm I saying. I didn't see it. I didn't see you I didn't did. See that. Everyone saw it. Ollie Smith, <laughs> he knew. Everyone knew. And because he dived in panic, he's got away with it. But you take the snapshot of two games, two semi finals over the weekend with different referees, and this is where we're at with you know people complaining all the time and, you know, People putting stuff on social media. Obviously, Jack Knoll got done the other week for talking about decision. When you got one referee, Wayne Barnes giving the decision and saying it's a yellow card and a penalty, and then the same weekend in another semi-final, you've got Matthew Reynal, who's also one of the best referees in the world, giving it as just a knock-on. You're like, how does this work? If you're a Scarlet's fan or if you're Dwayne Peel you know, as the head coach or any of the players, you devastate because every other time that's happened this season, that's been a, a yellow card and probably a penalty try because he was on the edge to score it, and it would have 100% been a try. So frustration, and you clip them both up, have a look at them both. They are very similar. One hand, ball goes up. One's a yellow card, one's not. If you're Scarlet's fans, you can feel hard done by.
2: Andrew. Yes. You know that I am quite entrepreneurial. I see myself as a creative. I am creative director of World Rugby. Genuinely, you are missing a trick here because I think if you set up a podcast called the GMO bunker, however, we could come up with a name, you would make an absolute killing. Like, as in the people that are coming to bear their aggression of social media anger... I genuinely think you could have a forum to house that. You're a man that gets completely unflustered with drama. Like you don't even mind it coming to blows and you stand there with your hands in your pocket. I think we could get a really big sponsor on. I think this will work. Yeah, I could see like a Budweiser, a Nike. You see where I'm going with this. And, And there's another couple of brands out there that could potentially be headline sponsors. I think you've got something that could take
0: off here because... Just say it as I say it. Yeah, you know it. You know it.
2: Yeah, GMO bunker.
0: I know me, Ruggers. And this is the thing, and I'll say it again. You you talk about TMOs and all this stuff. You need ex-players in there with them. It's the same thing with VIR and football. You need ex-players looking at stuff and understanding, not just looking at a law book, but understanding the feel of a game and what's happened. Ex-players can help out
1: massively. Talon managed to do it with 14 men for 74 minutes and nil Benetton. How'd they do that?
0: And talking about Toulon, I need to bring up a quote from Jim Hamilton last week as we were speaking. I think it was up in Dundee, this one. And I've got stuck into him about his international record and his win percentage and all this stuff. His response was, I was the Sergio Parise of Scotland. I set the foundations for this team to go on a be round. <laughs> look at Sergio Parise now this weekend. Putting grubber kicks through for tries for his teammates. Jim, there's a chance, mate. You are the Sergio Parise of Scotland. A little bit worse looking. Your breath's definitely worse. But Sergio Parise, he's about 46. He's still going. And he's got everything. He's got the little grubber through for a try. How good was he?
2: Unreal. And I've asked a lot of people and text Sergio. And he sent a wink back when I asked him the question. World Cup, yes or no? Imagine. The wink. What do you think? You think about who's in his position. So Lorenzo Canoni at eight for Italy has been brilliant. Lamar at seven, not that Sergio would ever play. Seven. And Seb Negri, friend of the show as well. The romantic in me, I would love to see Sergio Parisi have a swan song. And the fact that he is at Toulon, I know it's only the Challenge Cup. See, I only said it was only the Challenge Cup when I said about Glasgow, it was all about the Challenge Cup. Horrible. But I, I think he's good enough to be involved in that Italy squad. If you look past age. So I would like to see him.
0: In the squad, but... They've got an easy group as well, haven't they? So... Yeah, I've seen that, the poor poor lads. Yeah, I mean, New Zealand and France.
1: (laughs) It's the final round of the Premiership regular season this weekend. Most things are already sorted out, but who's getting the final Champions Cup spot? Oh, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. So there's two teams, really. Gloucester as
2: well, in 10th, have got a chance to squeeze in. So just for a bit of context... Exeter, Quinns on 47, so they're in. So it's going to come down to Bristol, who are on 42, Bath on 42, and Gloucester on 41 points. Bath plays Saris at Bath. Sarries, as we know, qualified in first, so they've got a home semi. And Bristol at home to Gloucester. We were going through the archives and we've worked with producer Rob. It's going to come down to points difference. I think... Bath will beat Saris. I think Bath are on fire at the minute. And we can maybe talk a little bit about them if they beat Saris at the weekend. But Bristol, you look at everything that they're playing for, the kind of players that they've got, it feels like they've got a bit of the momentum because they're, what is it, goodies, Is it seven
0: points in front, eight points? So basically, Jim, in terms of maths, and this is my genre here, Bath have got to beat Saracens by nine points more than Bristol beat Gloucester by to go ahead of them in the league, I think. It might be a bit more complicated than that, but I think that's what it is. So I'm I'm back in <laughs> I'm back in Bristols. Obviously a lot of players leaving. You know, the likes of Charles Pietal, Izofsky. There's a few others leaving as well. They've done very well in terms of money in the bank. They've played some scintillating rugby, but I'm sure they'll want to leave on a bit of a high in terms of securing Bristol Champions Cup rugby next year. And that's kind of their parting gift, if that makes sense. I know Semi he said he might be back for that game as well, didn't he? So we shall see on that. But Gloucester, I feel really sorry for them. They've had loads of injuries this year. I just think Bristol finally will have too much and they'll secure that last place. But Bath, I'm having a, a bit of banter with my mate Josh at work who is a Bath stalwart and he's getting excited because they've won three dead rubbers on the spin. But they've still got a chance, Jim. They've still got a chance.
2: Well, they've not dead rubbers then, are they? Because the money and the opportunity they get at the Champions Cup. Here's one for you. I'm just going to throw it out there. I mentioned a few players. Tom Pearson, last week I said, I reckon he'll be in the England squad Ben Spencer. I know there's a bit of hysteria doing the rounds in the media at the minute. He'd be up there for starting scrum half for England, the way that he plays, and he's been brilliant for Bath as well. So I still think Bristol, though.
1: Well, we have tickets to give away to Bath v. Saracens this weekend and London Irish v. Exeter, thanks to the famous grouse. Just check out our social media channels to enter those. Courtney Laws has signed a new contract with Northampton. You guys surprised given the stage he's at in his career and the money that he could have got elsewhere?
2: Mm, made a lot of
1: money already,
2: I imagine. I do wonder how much longer he's got in the legs. This is me just guessing here. Has he signed a one-year deal? So therefore he wants to go to the World Cup. One last chance saloon to play in the World Cup. And part of that is he signed the deal at Northampton. Is he the ultimate one-club man? We will see. But yeah, I, I thought he would have moved on. But with the injuries that he's had, maybe he feels like he's got a little bit more to give to England, a bit more to give for Northampton. Who knows? But yeah, I mean, it's great by Northampton to keep him. Brilliant player. One of the best players, I'd say, of our generation.
0: I also look at it and, and you do think, yes, there will be big offers elsewhere, but perhaps because of that injury record that he's had over the last few years, which hasn't been great, maybe there isn't a the massive box on the table for him from other clubs, because they, you know, they look at the impact of injuries and how much game time you've had over the last two years. We've seen Manu Tulangi resign at sale, you know, no doubt the same with him. He's turned down money abroad, but you look at the injury record and that's what clubs look at. So I think it's brilliant that Courtney Laws is staying at Saints. No doubt he'll have a testimonial as well. So Courtney, if you want me and big Jim to come and host that, we can do a great job. We'll go to the all you can eat Chinese and we'll stay out till six in the morning.
1: While we're talking about one club men, who do you think's the biggest one club man in rugby?
0: Not me or Jim Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> no. Not Andy Good. You
2: know what? You know the one-club man stuff? This is something that I used to think about a lot. And we've been both been at clubs where we've had players there that have never left, like the likes of Leicester, where you've got players like Martin Johnson, just to name one, who was a one-club man, Martin Corey. Same at Gloucester when I was there. Nick Wood at Loosehead, Andy Hazel as well. Jackson Ray at Saracens, just to name a few. There's obviously a load more than that. I always admire these people because of the loyalty that they show. You could flip that and say it's comfort zone. I see it as loyalty. I think showing that amount of loyalty, and yes, loyalty is repaid with finances and you get paid and and well paid. But I I do think there's a romance and a charm around these one-club men. So it's a big question, very different, I think, now to where it was back in the day with the likes of Lawrence Delalio at Wasps, Martin Johnson at Leicester, I mentioned Nick Wood and Andy Hazel at Gloucester. Oh, it's a tough one.
0: It is. For me, a little bit close to home. And some people go, oh, you're biased about it. But Ben Youngs and then Tom Youngs as well, his brother. Tom. I know Tom had a went to Nottingham and, and learnt his trade as a hooker. But Ben Youngs in this professional era, you know, to be a one-club man, the family roots of it as well, obviously, their dad... Played for the club as well and and other parts of their family did. So for me, I'm probably looking at Ben Youngs. I started out with him when he came through at about 16 years of age. He played in the Premiership final off the bench when he was still at school. You know, I had the privilege of playing with him early on. To still see him pulling that Tigers jersey on and see how much it means to him. I think that's a, a big thing. He's won a lot for the club. So Ben Youngs would be one for me.
2: Yeah, for me, and it is quite topical, but I'm going to go for Jackson Ray, who's made over 300 appearances for Saracens, And the reason why I'm going for Jackson Ray is because of the quality that he's had to compete with, with the likes of Billy Van der Poelen, Burger coming into the mixer as well, uh, Jacques Burger. You think of the players that have Ernst Hubert, you think of the players that he's had to compete with. I mean, he's only 32 as well. And there's a load. I would have picked Andy Hazel at Gloucester, but I think closer to home in this modern game, with the quality that Saracens have had in that position, who they could have picked, I'd say that Jackson Ray, and he didn't get capped as well, so I feel a little bit sorry for him. Jackson Ray, the
1: ultimate club man. There's been a bit more talk about merging some of the Prem teams. Is this something that you think should be considered, lads?
0: This is very cheap talk. It's come from a bloke called Mick Hogan, who used to be involved at Newcastle he's not anymore he wants Leeds Sale, Newcastle to merge nah Mick stick to rugby league you've left the game now I think so um, I'm not having it you can't have a team in Newcastle and a team in Manchester it's hours apart merging to make one team the north because how do you then create a fan base so I, I think it's a ridiculous comment so we'll, we'll park that shall we
1: alright then we'll park that and we'll go straight on to the good the bad and the ugly
0: yeah, let's start off with some good. Dave Atwood, Jim, a man you played with and against quite a few times, I'm sure, had a few ding-dongs with. Good player. Very good player. He's announced he's retiring after over 350 games for Bath, Bristol, Gloucester and Toulon. hell of a shift from him, so he gets a mention because it's a hell of a career. Toulon beating Benetton 23-0 despite playing 74 minutes with only 14 men. Glasgow get a mention in the good this week. They won 35-17 away at the Scarlets to reach their first ever European final. And become the first Scottish team in a European final since 2015. It's a big shout out to Franco Smith and all the Glasgow boys. Leinster get a mention in the Goud. Of course they do. They dispatched Toulouse in that semi-final playing some scintillating rugby. And La Rochelle get a mention in the Goud. Of course they do. Because they beat our beloved Exeter Chiefs. Because we love the Chief Chief Chiefs now, don't we Jim? In that semi-final. They were both pretty untouchable at times. Leinster and La Rochelle. So they both get a mention. The Jersey Reds. Get a mention, Jim. Yes, they won it. They did. All the talk's been about Ealing winning the championship and coming up and all this stuff. But Jersey beat Ampt Hill 43 points to 15 to become champions of the championship for the first time in their history. And they finished on 100 points. So a hell of a shift from the Jersey boys. Shout out to the coaches, which Rob Webber is one. Everyone talks about Ealing. Nah, it's about Jersey. Out of a weekend in Jersey as well it is. So we should get them up and go over there. So shout out to them. But the good this week goes to the Red Roses and all the fans creating a record crowd of 58,498 at a women's match as England beat France at Twickenham to win the title for the sixth time in the last seven years, but also a grand slam to boot. So shout out to all the Red Roses and the crowd for setting that world record. That's why they get the good this week. The bad, a couple of bits of bad, really. Andy Marinos. Has resigned as CEO of Australian Rugby. What do you mean he's resigned because Eddie Jones has come in? Just months before a World Cup. I don't mean that. He has resigned, though. Not because Eddie's come in. Maybe it was. But he's off to somewhere else. He used to coach in Wales, Jim. Do you reckon he's going to Wales? Who knows? He needs some help. And Andy Marinos has done a hell of a job at Australia. So maybe he's going there. Uh, Johnny Gray's injury uh, gets a mention in the bad this week. Mm. Dislocated his knee against Show. It looked a nasty one, so thoughts with him. But the bad this week has to go to Benetton. They got nailed by a team that had only 14 men for 74 minutes. Didn't really turn up for a European semi-final. So Benetton, you get the bad this week. The ugly, a couple of bits of ugly. Uh, we're going to start off with the Andrew Porter incident. Jim says it was not an illegal tackle. I say it was. It's the fact that the TMO didn't even bother with it. He was having a poo. He was in the biscuit tin, one or the other. But that got missed, so that looked pretty ugly to me. But the ugly this week goes to Charles Olivon, who was sent off after six minutes for Toulon against Benetton for a dangerous tackle on Matteo Minazzi. Clear shoulder to the head, flying up, chasing the kick, upright in the tackle, straight red card. So that's why Charles Olivon gets the ugly this week.
1: Thanks Scooty and you guys have got some shout outs to finish off with don't you? Yeah
0: we're going to start out with a bit of a shout out it's a bit of a funny one actually to Tom and Finty his now fiance the story goes Jim Tom and Toby his mate came to our live show in London with Namani Andolo a couple of years ago Oh gosh it's not going in this way is it? It is going this way so anyway shout out It is oh my god Tom gets home from the live show after being drunk under the table by Nemzi myself and you Jim couldn't find his keys was sick everywhere outside the front door his missus Finty lets him in and then gets him up to the bedroom tries to undress him realizes he's shat himself as well so not only has he been sick out the front end he's shat himself out down the back end he was in the doghouse for about six months he's out the doghouse now he's proposed to Finty and they're getting married so a massive shout out to Tom for turning it round. Finty for saying yes even though Tom shat himself so good luck to you
2: well Finty good luck is all I'm saying because once it happens once it's going to happen again <laughs> I've got a big shout out as
0: well to Tom Spiller.
2: He played his final game for Falmouth RFC last weekend. And also a big shout out to Bill Arecki RFC, rugby club, and chairman Neil Jarvis, a.k.a. Big Nose. That's not me saying that. That's whoever wrote in. Uh, Who's stepping down after 25 years service to the club, a club stalwart who's played or volunteered at the club for over
0: four decades. Yeah, and also a massive shout-out to Bangor Rugby Club Primary 7 mini-team as they prepare to take part in a Tri-Nations competition in Italy. Also to Stonygate under-15s who have won the Leicestershire County Cup final and to Chipping Norton under-13s for winning the Leicester Tigers Challenge and the Oxfordshire County Festival.
2: Right, last one from me. Shout-out to Cambridge RFC who won National 1 at the weekend with a bonus point win over Birmingham Moseley RFC. They're now heading up to the Championship. Next year. Go on, lads.
0: Finally, a massive good luck to Rosie Witherspoon and her two siblings who are running the Leeds Half Marathon in May to raise money for the MND Association. It's a cause that is very close to their hearts, as unfortunately their dad was diagnosed with MND two years ago and is in the final stages of this awful disease that obviously Jim myself and everyone knows a lot about through Doddy, etc. So if you'd like to donate, you can find their Just Giving link by searching the Spoons on JustGiving.com and I wish Rosie and her two siblings all the best in doing that.
2: Yeah, good on you, Rosie. Thanks, Gertie.
1: Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Patricia, Rob and thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to check us out on YouTube and make sure you've subscribed on Spotify. Ruby Spot. Spotter pod, 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 pod. <laughs>